There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The series that we've been talking about, that we've entitled AI, is not about AI in the context of what so many of us have been having conversations of late, the idea of artificial intelligence. This, this concept that computers are gonna be created in such a way that they become kind of sentient of themselves and able to think for themselves and decide for themselves. Uh, the conversation throughout has been around this idea that, there, that artificial intelligence can be a threat to us. People far smarter than I have said that there's, there's a greater than zero chance that they will end up resulting in the destruction of all humanity. Um, and I understand, the, I understand the concern. I understand the, um, the reflection on that. And even as some of us in, this, in, this, um, in our world today find this to be a fearful concept. But that's really not what this conversation has been about. It's really about the idea of how human uh, projects, human ideas, human thoughts are what I would call artificially intelligent. For me, that is the greater AI threat that the world faces. And I say it's the greater threat because it is a threat that is ancient. It is a threat that has been around since the very beginning. And it is a threat that has shown itself to be, in the end, destructive and not really productive. It's the idea, as is uh, expressed in um, Solomon's book of Proverbs, the, the way there's a way that seems right to a man but the end thereof is destruction. As we have come to this place in our, in our humanity where we've considered that we have the intelligence, we have the ability, we, we, we have what it takes to, to bring about the redemption of mankind, to bring about good in mankind, almost every single time it has resulted in something that is not productive, that is not good. Um, and the reason why I say it is, it is a greater threat is because it is so prevalent and has a determined outcome. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 it expresses where ultimately it leads when he says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. So when you look at the philosophies born of human ideas, absent the truth of God played out in human application consistently, we see nothing but futility and death and destruction. This was evident from week one when we talked about the clear destruction that comes when you embrace the idea that we come from nothing and we are going to nothing. That we are not creation with creator, but we are accidents of of cosmic chaos that we're not created in the image of God, as the Bible says, providing intrinsic value in every human life. But we are just created by chance, existing by chance, one amongst trillions and trillions and trillions of lives that have lived human life and animal life and plant life. As a result of that, what we discover is, in reality, it diminishes the value of life and the meaning of living. And that creates in our world a culture of death and meaninglessness. And that truth led to last week's discussion. If a man comes from nothing and is going to nothing, 
then the life we live becomes man-centric. What I do or don't do, or should logically do, would focus on my wants, my, my desires, my pleasure, and the experiences for that brief, brief blip of time that we are here on this planet. It is the idea that if all I have are these few short years, that I've come from nothing, I'm going to nothing, and all I have are these 50 years or 60 years or 80 years or even 90 years, which represents almost no time in the millennia of time. What I should do is enjoy myself to the fullest. But if this life is the result of design, this life is the creation of a creator whose purpose is to glorify that creator, then the life I live will have different priorities and different values. This is where we find different ethics and a different morality. Because if we are here to glorify our creator, the nature of that creator becomes our objective moral standard. His standard of love and of justice and of holiness and of mercy and of purity and of fidelity. That, that which is very inherent in his own being becomes our morality. But where God is absent, you lose objective morality. And it becomes subjective, dependent on the feelings and the thoughts and the desires of a human or a collective of humans. And that, we see over and over again, has led to great destruction and to death. And so we find ourselves in a place where the idea that God doesn't exist, and, and, and into that place you have to add the wisdom of man, the knowledge of man, the plans of man, you see destruction. And that's what leads us to today's conversation. I want you to think for a moment the path we've been on with humanity that embraces a reality absent God. We spelled out for you the, the logical path, the, the logical result of the way laid out by the absence of God, that life and living logically have no meaning and value. And yet we find around us people continue to try to pursue purpose and meaning. They aren't willing to, to embrace the oblivion that is the illogical outcome of their belief. And if there is no God by whom an objective moral standard is established, then there is no objective morality. And yet man continues to impose an objective morality fashioned after their own personal feelings. The idea that, that seculars push that there is no knowable truth, that there, is, that there is only moral relativism, isn't really what they practice, is it? You see all around us secular humanists imposing their morals and their morality. Have you noticed that those same people who say that there is no, there is no objective morality that says that, that all truth is relative, seem to be the first ones to tell you how you're wrong, how this is wrong, how, how you need to do the right thing and stop doing the wrong thing. If, if you haven't noticed that, you haven't been on Facebook very much, right? Why is that? Why is it that people who say that, who, why is it that people who, who, who say that there is no objective morality 
are the ones who need to impose morality. The same people who tell you there is no evil, that people are basically good, are the same people who are, who are, who are not sitting back and allowing the basic goodness to simply come out. Have you ever thought why it is that those who are most committed to a secular humanistic relativism practice some of the most heavy-handed authoritarianism imposed by oppressive systems? Those officially atheist nations that we discussed last, word, last, last week that were fully given to the atheist ideals of Darwin and Marx have given us the systems of China and North Korea and the Soviet Union. People who reject objective morality of God impose their own objective morality. Those who reject the idea of original sin and evil are unwilling to rest in the reality, in their mind, of man's basic goodness. Why? The reason is this is simple. It's because they look around and are confronted with the reality that man is in need of redemption. They look around and they see what all of us see. The brokenness, the, the hatred, the injustice. And they set about to create the system outside of God in which they believe, through their beliefs, man will be redeemed. The first week, the foolishness of man disguised in intelligence said, we come from nothing and are going to nothing. The second week, it declared there is morality outside God. And this week, it says, the right man-made system will bring about the redemption of mankind. It is the idea that the right political system, the right educational system, the right philosophical system, the right social system, the right religious system, the right financial system, the right scientific system will bring about the redemption of mankind. It's the idea that what has ultimately gotten in the way of our utopian society is that the right system just has not been rightly implemented. That although the world is marked by the scars of human depravity, it is only that way. Because there hasn't been enough human wisdom or human intellect or human structure or human discovery or human systems applied. Now, as I present that, as I think what is very, very real and very true, the flaws of that thinking, I think, should be self-evident. The idea that we can make a better life and a better world isn't an idea that sprang up into existence last week. This is one of the things that as I get older in life, I realize that every generation thinks they thought of the needs of the world better than the generation before or for the first time ever. And that they have the idea that will make things better than what they did back, you know, 10 years ago. Man has thought that they could make a better world through many, many, many different means throughout time. And yet here we are. Some things are better, some things are worse. But by and large, we, 
We still have war and we still have anger and we still have injustice and we still have poverty and we still have hatred and we still have and 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 and. And the truth is, the reality is this. Whatever progress we may have made can be lost in one generation. And the reason is simple. Broken people with broken minds will never conceive of a system that solves the broken problems of this world. And it's frustrating because we keep putting our hope in political philosophies and in economic restructurings and new scientific discoveries. I mean, heck, that's really what is driving people to pursue AI as it is, right? We have this idea, we have this thought that people are saying, and, 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 and to me it's always been something, I don't know, kind of self-evident because I've seen movie after movie after movie after movie saying, don't have artificial intelligence, it's going to kill you all. So I didn't really need the scientists who are smart to go, hey, this might be a threat to us. And yet, we still are pursuing it. Why? Because at the heart of it, people believe that the hope for tomorrow, the hope for humanity, will be artificial intelligence that will solve all our problems and do all our work. Here's the reality. There is nothing new under the sun. Whatever you find, whatever you create, whatever you think is your new idea to redeem mankind is not new. It may have advanced trappings or technological advances, but ultimately it has been tried and it has failed and will fail to redeem mankind. The wisdom of man will not solve the problems of man because ultimately the problems of man are rooted in the heart of man. Now, I have to stop here because as I go through this, I, I don't mean to sound hopeless. Um, after the first sermon I preached, I went to my wife and I said, well, how was the message? And she said, it was really good, but I was really, really depressed. <laughs> and, uh, and so I don't want to give you that impression today. The impression I want to give you is the pathway that we take, if it follows the way of man, is hopeless. There is no hope to be found in the systems of men. But I want you to understand this too. There is a great hope that is held out for each one of us. There is a very real hope because it is a hope that deals with the heart of mankind. The only system that holds hope for the redemption of mankind is the creator's plan of redemption. The plan realized in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. The only wisdom that holds promise for the redemption of man is the wisdom that is found in Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about that for a moment. What I just said. The only system introduced to mankind, if everyone were to embrace it, that has the ability to bring about the redemption of personal identity, the, the redemption of, of relationships, the redemption of families, the redemption of economies, the redemption of the emotional and spiritual and even physical health is the system embodied in the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. 
When you really look at what it is that Jesus Christ lays out for us and that, and that our creator holds out for us, it has no drawbacks. There, there are no winners and losers. There is no downside. There is only a sense of purpose and meaning and value and peace and hope and service and stability and healing that is found in the community of Christ that lives out the nature of Christ. And understand something. I'm not talking about Christian religiosity. I'm not talking about Christian theocracy. I'm not talking about the imposition of a standard of Christian ideology and practice. What I'm talking about is the pure idea of Christian transformation that comes about when you are captured by the Holy Spirit in your hearts and your minds, yielded to the Lordship of Christ through the outpouring of his love on the cross, a love that compels us to live in accordance with the objective morality of God, his love, his fidelity, his mercy, his purity, his grace, his justice, his truth. This that is held out for us brings value to your personhood through your identity as his creation. It provides for you a personal identity outside your, your human or even internal acceptance. It establishes stability for your family. It gives protection for the body. It gives meaning, direction, and hope. It eliminates prejudice, establishes peace, encourages productivity, all for the good of mankind and for the glory of God. And all of this is in Christ Jesus. I want you to walk back with me back to Colossians chapter 2. This is a chapter that we have, we have visited a couple times through this series. And I want you to see how Paul is letting us know the, the boundless nature of wisdom and knowledge and understanding that rests in Jesus Christ in contrast to the wisdom of the world. Paul's direct challenge to us is putting our hope in anything but the world, in anything other than in anything in the world, in anything other than Jesus Christ. I'm going to pick it up in the middle of, of verse 2 in chapter 2 and, and see what Paul, Paul writes here and how it's a direct affront to the wisdom of mankind. That their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What is Paul writing here? Paul is saying, listen, I want you to understand everything. I want you to understand everything. I want you to have the full knowledge. I want you to, I want you to grasp completely the mystery of God, which is Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I want you to understand that. I want you to grasp that. I want you to take hold of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because in him is all wisdom and all knowledge. Let's have, a, let's have a quick literature lesson here. What does all mean? All. All means all. 
This is not being compartmentalized into some concept of, of, of Christian idea, ideology or, 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 or Christian philosophy or spirituality. What he's saying is, I want you to understand, if you want to gather all wisdom and all knowledge, it's found in Jesus Christ. And the way I know that's true is because Paul then makes the declaration. He says, I'm telling you this so that you are not taken astray by plausible arguments. So he's saying when other people tell you that there's another way, when other people tell you there's another idea, when some people tell you there's other wisdom, all wisdom and all knowledge is in Jesus Christ, so know him. And then it's, and it's from that, that, there that he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The wisdom found in Jesus Christ, the knowledge found in Jesus Christ is the totality of wisdom and knowledge that brings redemption to mankind. When this is applied, it becomes the hope of mankind because it is drawn from the nature of the creator of mankind. It is displayed in the life and the work of Jesus Christ specifically for the purpose of redeeming mankind. The work of Christ provides the opportunity for peace and love and sacrifice and grace and compassion and purity. He sets forth the, the, the model of faithfulness and sobriety and humility and identity. It values all the things that are lacking in the plans of men. The absence of which creates the fear, the, the hate, the, the selfishness, the vindictiveness, the immorality, the infidelity, the drunkenness, the pride and the greed. It is fascinating to me because as I've pressed in further in my understanding of who Jesus Christ is, as I've pressed in further in my understanding of what the scripture reveals, when I've pressed further into community in Christ and I've watched the hand of God transform people through the truth of Jesus Christ, I've realized there is a hope for you and a hope for mankind that the world cannot offer you. And it's rooted in three very real truths that only exist in the construct of the plan of God, in the hope that is revealed in Jesus Christ, that is discovered only in Christian value. There's three very important truths that I see every time I go to God's word that give me the understanding of why this is the answer. And, and all three of them are captured in, in this beautiful um, passage that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul goes in and, and he talks specifically about the salvation plan offered by God for the redemption of man, about what it really is and how it looks, and ultimately how it changes us in the life that we live. He starts and he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and, uh, in, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that any, any may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The first truth that empowers us as Christians and, and, and the belief in Christianity to redeem mankind is, is, is hidden directly in, in these words of Paul, and it is this. The reason why we are uniquely positioned as Christians to redeem mankind is because, it, because the truth is not imposed from the outside, but compelled from the inside. We need to understand something. The power of Christianity is that it is not rooted in compulsion, but comes from willing submission. It is not imposed, but it is given. That is why religiosity is fruitless, why theocracies fail, why authoritarianism, even in the name or in the guise of compassion, does not ultimately redeem mankind. It is us saying to, to one another, this is what we think you should do, and we're going to make you do it. All it does is cause resistance, and all it does is cause rebellion, and all it does is cause division. But the message of Christianity is freely given and freely received. The experience of the believer is very clear. We receive the gift of salvation. We are freely given and we freely receive a relationship with Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The transformation of, of, of actions, the, the change in behavior comes about. Why? Because God has given to you something special. And you've received it and you've responded to it. And your life changes. It's because of what Jesus does inside of you to deal with your heart. And you respond. This is where the religious right and the religious left lose their way. Christianity is not intended to co-opt the sword of the government and impose Christian values because Christian faith is meant to govern the heart of men, not nations. Yes, we live different, created in Christ Jesus for good works. But those good works come about because of what he did inside us and our heart is transformed. Now, there's, there, there is... It's undeniable that in the structuring of culture and society, using Christian values is helpful in certain places. The Bible teaches thou shalt not kill. It's helpful for a society to say murder is wrong. But ultimately, the power of Christianity is not enforced by the sword, but it is received in the heart and transforms mankind to be different, to be better, to be like Jesus. The human problem is the human heart. And God freely gives us the gift of Christ. We freely receive that gift. 
And we are then changed. The second truth of God in his plan, that is uniquely effective to redeem mankind, is that it is not from the limited mind of the created, but from the limitless heart of the creator. This isn't man trying to conceive of something in us, but the love of the creator making a way for us to be redeemed in this life. But God, it says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What we understand as Christians is that our creator, who knows us better than anyone else, better than anything else, conceived of a plan out of his heart for us, his love for us, his desire to see us redeemed because he loved us and he said, this is what man needs. Our creator knows us and loves his children, seeking to bring redemption to us. The plan he has for us is for our good, to fulfill, our, uh, to fulfill in us our, our, our created purpose. And in doing that, we find complete and total joy and fulfillment. This is one of the things that we as Christians need to hang on to and understand that those who are outside of Christianity don't understand. The reason why our joy and our peace and our fulfillment is found in our pursuit of God is because God created us for him. That's where we find our fulfillment. That's where we find our purpose. That's where we find our meaning. It's not in, in, in the temporal pleasures of this life. It's in God himself. His love for us is the place from which he created a way for us. And, and, and that, that way for us is, is one of good. It's one, uh, it's one of wanting the best for us. This is Romans, Romans chapter 8, that passage that so many of us, uh, so many of us have heard over and over again, where it says, all things work together for good for those called by him for his purposes. God has a plan for all of his children. He loves us and he wants good for us. And when we stay on that path, when we stay in that plan, his purpose for us is to experience the best the good. And it's amazing because that, that little passage ends in verse 31 with this declaration. If God be for us, who can be against us? And it's so important to really understanding what allows us to live the life that brings redemption of our relationships, brings redemptions of our hearts, brings redemptions in our communities. Because the, the thir third reality of Christianity, that the third reality that is found only in Christianity that helps bring about the redemption of man is that very idea. We, we, are, we are not restricted by the fears of our humanity, but set free by the fearlessness born of his love for us. The passage we just read is this. Guys, understand something. God has good for you. And, and if God is for you, who can be against you? 
So the calling is go into the world and live out what Christ was, who Christ is. Live that out because God loves you and God is for you. You see, that is the platform from which we are able to be that person. That which is required to create a better world can only come to fruition when we are able to to let go of our fears and our need for self-preservation. Hate and prejudice and greed and anger are the result of fear that drives our need for self-preservation. They are born of of our human wants and desires and we are fearful of losing out, being taken advantage of and not getting what we believe we deserve. So from that place of fear, we self-protect and we create selfish division. This is true of the individual relationship and this is true in our society. But God has created a way for us to be secure. Secure in his love for us. Secure in his plan for us, which is good. So if God be for us, Who can be against us? Passage there in Ephesians explains it beautifully. And you were dead in the trespasses of your sin in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work of you in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of, of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Following after our passions, following after our desires, following after what our body wants. And so we're grasping for it, we're taking hold of it, and we're fighting for it. And in that, we see greed, and we we see division, and we see anger, all from the fear of not getting what our flesh wants. That's why the next line is so powerful. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, we are set free to manifest the love of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. We can fearlessly live sacrificially in humility, Reflecting the nature of Christ for the glory of God because we know he loves us and he's for us and he will protect us and he will provide for us as we yield ourselves to the image of Jesus Christ. Love and forgiveness and mercy and grace and compassion and selflessness and sacrifice are able to be manifested in our broken nature because we know that God loves us and he's there for us and has a good plan for us. Nothing in human plans will manifest the beauty and grace and love and holiness necessary to redeem us. But the love of God revealed in the work of Christ is the hope for all of us. In him the fullness of God dwelled. All wisdom and all knowledge is in him. Don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, but find your redemption 
in Jesus Christ. The redemption of your history, the redemption of your story, the redemption of the events that have taken place in your past, the redemption of your relationships, the redemption of your addictions, the redemption of your life and of our world will come as we all come to Jesus Christ humbly, knowing our creator loves us and has a good plan for us.